Good morning, New Hope. Uh, I want to start today with uh, Ephesians, uh, Ephesians 5, 15 through 17. Be most careful, then, how you conduct yourselves, like sensible men, not like simpletons. Use the present opportunity to the full, for these are evil days. So, do not be fools, but try to understand what the will of the Lord is. Uh, I want you guys to understand something. Or think about something. Have you ever questioned the wisdom of your elders in this church? Remember this day. They are wise. They chose me to speak on July 4th when there would be the fewest possible people here and limit the possible carnage as a result. So, Actually, I was asked to speak on this day, and uh, they said, choose something. So I chose something that I thought was the spirit led me to talk about, which was unsung heroes. The problem with speaking about unsung heroes has some pretty evident challenges. Uh, There's few to reference because they're unsung. So I wanted to pick a character out of history, specifically around the revolutionary period, because it is July 4th weekend, and... It was difficult. In fact, I gave up on that task. What I decided to do was talk about unsung heroes in the broadest context. Have you ever had a hero? Was it Zorro, Superman, Sherlock Holmes? There was something about hero stories that rang true because it seemed that the darkest hour would be the time a great transformation would take place. I'd like to tell the story about a hero, an unlikely little guy who made a big difference to his friends and to his world. His name is Samwise Gamgee. In J.R.R. Tolkien's The Two Towers, two heroes, Frodo and Sam, are in a desperate situation. They're in Osgiliath, the capital city from the early days of Gondor. Their quest to prevent the one ring from falling into the hands of the Dark Lord seems lost. The countries of Gondor and Rohan have gathered their forces into the Helm's Deep, Rohan's mountain fortress, expecting to battle and to die. Sam and Frodo have lost communication in hope of their seven other companions. Frodo fears the task too much for him. He tells Sam, I can't do this. But Sam with simple faith, recalls his own childhood heroes and encourages Frodo to carry on with these words. I know, I know, it's all wrong. By all rights, we shouldn't even be here, but we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger. They They were, and sometimes you didn't even want to know the end because how could it end happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing. It is times like these that make a great hero. Sam, the humble, everyman character, is bold here, encouraging Frodo to continue. Through the straightforwardness of faith, he carries on in spite of great odds. Much has been made of kings, generals, political giants, leaders of great movements. But for any of them to be the, lar- 
be the larger-than-life heroes, there, ha- there had to be those that are willing to sacrifice and subordinate and do those inglorious deeds to make the greater battle, movement, social improvement happen. Let's take one instance out of time. There was a seminal moment in the American Revolution, the sneak attack of the Continental Army on Trenton and the victory that resulted. All this on Christmas Eve. You've seen the romantic figure of George Washington standing at the prow of one of the boats with the stars and stripes streaming behind him. Have you ever taken the time to look at the rest of the figures in that grand mural? George Washington, as great a man as I've come to know him to be, was not alone. While intellectually we all will stipulate this obvious fact, do we consider the man that knew the land and obtained the boats that made the crossing possible? The scout that by doing his duty reported the situation at Triton that gave birth to the formulation of the plan to take advantage of this opportunity when this young country just needed a win. Or simply the oarsman pulling to propel his lonely boat forward. The lookout that through hunger, weary from lack of proper sleep, and the thought of previous defeats recently experienced, kept a keen eye out for obstacles and helped land his single craft on the other side of the river. The infantryman that slogged up the shore and dragged himself to Trenton from their landing with that best shoes full of holes in the snow to go to what he anticipated to be a full-on fight and likely a loss if recent history were any gauge. They were holding on to something greater than their current misery or deprivation. It is my belief that the greatest heroes, men and women, since the inception of the church have not been recorded in church history books. The vast majority of those people were like Sam, of modest means, unsung heroes of faith who pressed on in those dark hours. They weren't really noticeable, yet they clung to the hope that God had given them. They would not make a humanly visible mark on this world, but they knew that God had called them for a purpose, that size has nothing to do with the importance of that purpose. These aren't people who gave in or begged God to make life go their way. They are those who persevered in trials, knowing that what was in store for them was much better than any wish they could ever dream. We can look at the small spot we occupy on this earth inside this enormous galaxy in our unimaginably large universe and be overwhelmed with awe or even fear. But our size seldom has anything to do with our importance, just like Samwise Gamgee. In some respects, it's very easy to see that we are on a planet that may be in its darkest hours. There is a dark lord that threatens us, yet... Instead of persevering in hope, it's easy for us to fail to hear the messages. Life in the immediate is so loud. Now can be an overwhelmingly frightening or painful that we lose our long-term perspective and become incapable of hearing any voice or warning or wisdom. Or now can become so enjoyable, so compelling, that we become distracted from our eternal perspective and begin to lay our hope on things that cannot bear its weight. A luxury liner was traveling across the Atlantic as a massive party took place in its ballroom and a massive storm raged outside. 
as a result of the storm and accident occurred, leaving the ship critically damaged. But the people were unaware of the damage, and the captain, seeing that everyone was having such a great time drinking and dancing, didn't believe the reports. Didn't allow notice of the accident to be broadcast over the speakers, so the party and the journey and the storm outside continued. The ship is fatally damaged. You must come to the lifeboats. It blared over the PA system, and rescuers shouted the messages to the passengers one by one. But most of the people were very caught up in the, in the festivities. The band played loudly as the ship was sinking, and the people were really enjoying themselves. But a few ventured out and did notice that the ship was actually leaning toward the starboard side. Interestingly, some of the people became confused. Others rushed past the rescuers to their quarters. Once inside their cabins, they were gripped with fear, and what was now a clear reality, some began to fall down and pray. God, something is terribly wrong. We are willing to follow you. If you will please, just stop our ship from going under. But it became evident that he wasn't changing his plan. So these got up off the floor, returned to the ballroom. They had prayed to God. It didn't work. So the ship eventually sank. Yes, right before the final plunge, there was a last-minute rush to the lifeboats and frantic search for life vests, but the boats were gone, and it seemed like there were just enough life vests for those who had left when the rescue team called them. No comments were heard about continuing the party as the ship was engulfed by the rolling waves. Those who embraced life in the ballroom lost their lives, while those heeding the warning and boarded the lifeboats did not lose their lives. But there's a second story here. The story of those, even in a time when they were totally powerless, most in need of help from an all-powerful saving force, demanded that God change his concept of life. When those people returned to the ballroom, they would see the ballroom life had lost something. But refusing to be saved, they nonetheless lost their lives. The only people who would be saved were the ones who heeded the message and stepped out into the unknown and to the lifeboats. They would save their lives and eventually enter into a new quality of life, one much better than the diversion of life on the ship. As we dig deeper into what choosing a worldview means, it becomes clear. It's not going to be easy, and it's not a one-time decision. There will be times when we hurt so much that we might prefer the distraction of the ballroom. And there will be times that are so good that we find ourselves praying to God to let us stay there. These times will force us to make our choice again. Either we will view all of our, all of our life in light of the eternal, or we will cling to the temporal, all the time trying to modify the eternal to conform to our desires. The latter is, is a terrible blunder. It is foolishness to try to persuade God to modify his great plan only to get on board with our personal agenda. But there are many who are trying to do this very thing. They're not interested in, in life on the lifeboat, lifeboat, but they will unwittingly allow themselves to be lured into the water by the sirens that call them to their deaths. In Thornton Wilde's Wilders, our town, young Emily, who dies in childbirth, is allowed to go back and observe a single day of her brief life. 
the stage manager, who is her guide, advises her, choose the least important day of your life. It will be important enough. However, she makes the mistake of choosing her 12th birthday. And she's so overwhelmed by the experience that she concludes, I can't, I can't go on. It goes so fast. We don't have time to look at one another. I didn't realize. So all that was going on, and we never noticed. Take me back up the hill to my grave, but first, wait, one more look. Goodbye, goodbye world. Goodbye Grover's Corners, Mama and Papa. Goodbye to clocks ticking, and Mama's sunflowers, and food, and coffee, and new iron dresses, and hot baths, and sleeping, and waking up. Oh, Earth, you are too wonderful for anybody to realize you. She looks at the stage manager. Do any human beings ever realize life while they live it? The manager replies, no. The saints and poets, maybe. They do some. If we really pursue Christ, will we become saints and poets too? Will we begin to see life more creatively? Will we begin to see its goodness and all its possibilities? Rather than living in the future, will we savor this moment as if it were there, it were all there is? Will it make us grateful? Instead of wasting time in the ballroom, will we become careful about how we conduct ourselves? Paul advises we do this in Ephesians. He says, like sensible people, not like simpletons. But how? How do we live with awareness and live the present to the full, knowing the days are evil? It's been said, in fact, I have said it, that a person become, can become so heavenly-minded that they are no earthly good. I don't believe this anymore. People who develop an eternal perspective place value on the present, treasuring past opportunities of this life, becoming more alive to the moment, not less. They're not looking ahead to what they can gain or accomplish, but savoring everything for what it is. From this perspective, rather than being overwhelmed by the pain of this life and seeking to avoid it, we begin to understand that it will pass and that in our enduring is a great reward. As Paul says in Romans 8.18, our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. The Apostle Paul knew something about suffering. In the year 67 AD, after completing a life of outrageous faith, he was beheaded on the Ostian Way, just, in, just outside of Rome. In his final epistle, a letter to his young associate Timothy, he says, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. We all want to finish well. But we never will unless we are willing to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning his shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Paul said there was waiting for him a crown of righteousness, 
which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me. And on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. We are those who long for his appearing, or at least we are becoming those. This kingdom, this kind of kingdom, living is upside down according to the world's point of view. So while we live here, our faith leads us to accept a great deal of paradox. Consider, we've got to lose our lives to save them. We must be last in order to be first. We must die in order to live. We must serve in order to lead. We are strongest when we are weak. And we are weak when we think we are strong. We died in Christ, but we've never before seen, been so alive. We've become like a child to grow wiser. We are sitting in heaven while we're walking on earth. We lose our life to save it. We are humble and need no more. But when we are proud, we're poor. We should love this earthly country, but not love the things in it. We are sinners, but we are also saints. We are cleansed from sin, but in our flesh is no good thing. We are the reason why Christ died, but we are still the apple of his eye. We fear God, but we are not afraid of him. We are overwhelmed by his presence, but we are drawn to be close to him. We love supremely one who we have never seen. We are pessimists regarding the world, but live as serene optimists because we know that God's going to, what God's going to accomplish. The powers of darkness are vanquished by Christ, but the final conquest is in the future. When this life is over, we expect to live forever. And here's one of the biggest paradoxes of the Christian faith, one that I have not seen many in Christendom embrace. Being is more important than doing and must precede it. Oswald Chambers says that we count as discipleship what we do for Christ, but he counts as discipleship who we are to him. If our focus is on who we are and who we belong to, the doing will follow. I am convinced that being, living in intimate relationship with God now, should precede all that we do and should become our empowering force. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. We can't have the being without the doing. This applies to every moment of our lives. If we will seek his kingdom first, he promises to rest, the rest of our needs will be supplied. But if, we, but, but if we instead pursue only the works of our hands, we will craft a false self based on having and doing. You see, intimacy will energize and empower our activity. But activity will not necessarily lead to intimacy. Pascal said that our biggest problem is that we don't know how to sit quietly in a room, by which he meant that we cannot stand being still. This is what retreats are about, about being somewhere in solitude, away from phones, computers, even books. If we choose to invest in solitude, being alone with God in the present, we would probably learn more about ourselves 
than we would in a year of activity. It is easier to become a Christian if one is not a Christian than to become a Christian if one is already supposed to be. My mom, Patricia, she recently passed away. She didn't go to church, but was nonetheless a Christian. She lived, she lived Christian. She lived the adage, there is no greater calling than to be in service to others. She was a career waitress, a career she did not give up until she was 78 years of age and still outperforming the 20-somethings. And any of us that have ever had the experience of waiting on the public truly understand service. This is not just her vocation, but her avocation as well. My mother, about a month before her passing, she was very ill and in her hospital bed. She received a small cup of grapes accompanying her lunch. She popped one in her mouth and proceeded to offer the grapes to everyone in the room. It was her character. It was her life. It's how she lived. She was a person that knew how to be and enjoyed being alone and was not lonely. I believe that there was more to this, however. Her desire, her DNA, was such that whenever she was around others, she was in service mode. Her desire to stay private, especially as she grew older, was probably consciously or unconsciously more about self-preservation. She wanted everyone, be it customer, family, friend, or even stranger, to feel cared for. If she was around too many people, it probably would have worn her out much earlier. I think many of us frequently act and invest our days and years as if our satisfaction with life here were what mattered most and as if eternity was not an infinitely long period of time. If we want to distort the message of Christianity, we can choose to go through life this way. We can be Christians with a temporal paradigm, professing Christ, but practical atheists. However, the result of that choice will be that we are seduced by the wrong voices. We will, me we will measure our years here as if they were a long time and eternity as if it were nothing. Our lives will reflect this decision. In the end, we will have earned ourselves an eternity in which to repent. However, if we are committed to Christ... We cannot behave as if our Christian Christianity is of moderate importance. As C.S. Lewis said, if it is true, then it is infinitely important, and our lives ought to reflect this belief. Unfortunately, the average churchgoer is a person who seeks to make Christianity moderately important. That is to say, we fail to realize the implications of what this means for eternity. If we really trust Jesus, we are assured that we will have trouble and that the world is going to hate us. We must practice our faith every day, expecting that Jesus' that Jesus's promises are in fact true. But the ones we look forward to and the ones, both the ones we are looked forward to and the ones we find most difficult, this day could be our last. We're in a battle. The dark Lord is here, and he works among us. We must pick up our sword. We must expect to battle and to die.
God has not promised to make us comfortable, but he has promised to forge a Christ-like character in us. And he has promised that now is not forever. God sees each of us like a treasure, like a gem. He desires to separate the gem from the material in which it's found. Still, a raw stone is not brilliant. Faceting is the process by which a jeweler cuts his stones. The more of these facets, the more beautiful a stone becomes. But imagine being the stone. If God makes us beautiful by by a faceting process, we're going to have to imagine there will be quite a bit of pain involved. After the faceting, though, we become brilliant. And like any good jeweler, good jeweler, God sets us on a black velvet background to show us off. Well, we live in that black velvet background. A crooked and depraved generation in which we must shine like stars in the universe. We do this by refusing to grumble and complain so that we may become blameless and pure children of God without fault. I believe this may be even more necessary today than it was in the first century. When it was written, God's people are like stars in, the black back, in that black background, like gems that God has crafted. And through pain, He's polished us and faceted us so that we become more brilliant This is how he mediates his physical presence through his people. And this is why our perseverance is so essential. Now let us go back to Frodo and Sam and Osgiliath. As far as they're concerned, all hope is lost. Even while Sam boldly reminds Frodo of those heroes in that stories that, that really mattered, Frodo battles. He battles his own desire to keep the ring. But unbeknownst to to either characters, while Sam speaks in faith, their fate actually reverses. Hopeless situations are transformed. Though neither character is aware, it happens. Isengard is destroyed. Gandalf returns. Victory is nearly theirs. And in the midst of this triumph, Sam continues, unaware. But he says, this shadow, even darkness, must pass A new day will come, and when the sun shines, it'll shine out the clearer. Those are the stories that stayed with you, that meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back. Only they didn't. They kept going because they were holding on to something. A shipload of people dances while their destinies are played out in the icy water of the Atlantic. A wise woman trades her heavenly treasures for a few more meals. A ring bearer tries to hold on to the ring. What are we most interested in holding on to? Our happiness or our holiness? Our comfort or our character? We know well in which God is interested. So we struggle. We're not at home yet. And this is painfully obvious. But in seeking to to relieve that pain, we must not deceive ourselves into supposing that this world is enough, or even close to enough, to heal it 
or that this world can sustain the deepest longings of our lives because it never will? Do we have the courage to step out into lifeboat life, to appreciate the insignificant over the great celebrations, to hold on to something not so tangible? When this question is asked, do any human beings ever realize life while they live it? I hope our stage manager answers, yes, my children do. They are poets. They are saints. And they are heroes. They understand. And they will have chances to turn back. But they won't. And even as he speaks these words in faith, our deserved fate reverses. Victory is ours. And while he is in the midst of of his triumph, we continue in our most joyous moments and in our darkest hours, often aware but that is just fine. We keep going because we're holding on to something.